This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Sakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. And oh boy, oh boy, do I have something that is exciting because it all kind of coincides with the trip that you've probably already been hit by the ad in the very beginning that we put about, you know, going on this trip with us. To Japan. To Japan. I'm so excited. Which again, also you've probably seen from uh, the, the description of what it is that we're going to be talking about today. The Sengoku Jidai, which I, I love saying that word. Actually, among all things, considering that Shogun 2 Total War is to this day my favorite Total War game. Actually, no, I say that Medieval 2 is probably my favorite just in terms of the scope of the campaign. But Shogun 2 for just raw gameplay, I played more of that game than anything else. It was so bad. And there will be references to this that Gabby, I want you to listen to this little story real quick. When I went to Japan, when I studied abroad there Mm -hmm. in 2014, I still remember that during introductions, when they were when we were introducing ourselves, like the Japanese teacher and like other little things, and they said like, "Okay, well, say a couple things that you like," and you know, to try and do it in Japanese. So I said like, "Game or anime," which actually, when they're saying video games, that's Please tell game. Me you didn't of, tell me like anime. Uh, no, I did, but more importantly, I said "senso daisuki." What does that mean? I love war. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no. You said that to them? <laughs> oh, I said it. And the teacher like looked at me like, wait, wh- what? And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, the Genpei, Sengokushidai, uh, Boshin, which I just listed off the big Japanese civil wars. And like, oh, yeah, history. Okay. He likes history. He doesn't They're just like, like oh, war. he's here for World War Three. Yeah, no. <laughs> so that was my introduction. Oh, please don't do that when we go back. No, no, no. This is more about the the culture and the art and other stuff. Though, to be fair, we are going to be talking about something that took heavily, like it was placed heavily around Kyoto because Kyoto was a really, really big point in this history. So to kind of explain it, the Sengoku Jidai, this is the warring states period of Japan, essentially. This was this crazy, turbulent, very violent period of Japanese history. When all these different rival warlords or daimyo, as they were called, they would fight bitterly for control of Japan. It was a messy, messy time, and it falls within an overall period called the Muromachi period or the Muromachi Jidai, which takes place from 1333 to 1573. And this is arguably the Japanese medieval era. Like when people compare samurai and knights, this is their medieval period. That the point where the Ashikaga Shogun capital was located in the Muromachi area of Heian Kyo, which is Kyoto. That is modern day Kyoto. This area, Heian Kyo, was the seat of power of the emperor. This was the place where 
the imperial family would rule from since I think in terms of Japanese history, even though it goes back further, like the furthest point that we can say, yes, there was a Japanese imperial family in history goes back to around 600 AD. Like the crazy thing, and this has been a continuous line, like the Japanese lineage or their royalty goes back well over a thousand years. So the current family? Yes. They can trace that? Yes. That is insane. Yes. Because you know how there was this huge part in, uh, in, in history for like China or other parts where it's like new people would claim to be the emperor and would overthrow the old dynasty, et cetera, with yeah. warlords. So these guys during the single Kujidai did a similar thing where they would swear fealty to the emperor, but then simultaneously fight to, to take power away from the emperor. That was a very common thing. That is 100%. And I'm going to be totally transparent here. That is what I would do. Like yeah. I'd be like, yes, I fully support you. Great one. And then the moment I could stab him in the back, Brutus style, yeah, it'd be over. Except that they, you'd be stabbing him in the back politically, not physically, because the whole thing was they still believe that the emperor was a living god. So they wouldn't stab him? No, you, you didn't want to kill the emperor because that would turn literally everyone against you. So they would turn the emperor into puppets, essentially, that they would kind of rule through. And that's what the, so the have, shoguns did. I mean, honestly, if the emperor has like a big personality, I want to keep him around because I'm really good at puppeting someone with a personality, as we've seen. Wow. Oh, wow. no, no, no. That, I, Dude, that you, wasn't no, you. No, 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 no. No one can see this because it's a <laughs> podcast form right now. But if this was going up on YouTube, you are staring at me dead in the eyes. You cannot deny exactly what, what it is there, that you're trying to do. I would literally never puppet you mm-hmm. because of your personality oh, 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 yeah. and general draw. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's wild. Totally not. The Insane. strings are not being pulled in that scenario, Miss Puppet Master. Absolutely not. Anyway, when you announce your presidential run for 2030 something, mm-hmm. I will Uh-huh. Oh, oh. What, what will lead you the campaign. I oh, think. right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Um And then if it goes horribly wrong, they'll just blame you. Oh, yes. And I could just run. No, I can't run. Okay, so this is just all on you. It's all up to oh, you. Oh, good, good to know. Good to know. So it's like when the tool breaks from the puppet master, you just you just break it and blame the tool. Sure. Yeah, 100%. Anyway, let's circle back to the emperor. Uh-huh, yeah. So speaking of those puppets, when it comes to the emperor and what would happen here, uh, the, the, these different warlords would essentially try to take control of the emperor, but the issue was you didn't want to kill them because that would turn everyone else against you. So everything was always done in the name of the emperor. And that would be a huge part of Japanese history for not just centuries, but millennia. Even going all the way up until World War II, a lot of things were done in the name of the emperor that the emperor was not ordering. Like that's that's a big part of Japanese history. So the Sengoku Jidai, where things everywhere just go to crap, like complete another crap, that begins with something like the Onin War. And that would destroy Heian-kyo. The fighting that followed over the next century would eventually reduce the warlords to only a few hundred in number. Because originally there were thousands of these guys, all these different little minor clans. And these would be consolidated over the years as the entire country was effectively carved up into different kinds of princedoms. Only to, you know, end up having to unite into one, which eventually was done when one of the warlords would rise above all of them. Oda Nobunaga, which I'm sure you've seen a lot of different points here. When you play Civilization, remember oh, from yeah, Civ 5? Oh, yeah, 100%. You, also, you his played, name sounds so powerful. It does. Was he hot? 
if I brought up a picture of him, especially when you use Japanese medieval art, no. Darn it. I, I, I can't necessarily say exactly what he would look like or like with a proper representation because portrait technology, I guess, skill at this point, it's very different in the Japanese style that you would see in the 1500s versus what it was in Europe. Like, you know, when you see the Renaissance Baroque art and it's this very detailed description and that makes them look way more beautiful than they probably actually were. Yes. Yeah. No, if, if anything, this stuff is way more simplified and exaggerate certain features that is very aesthetic for Japan, mind you. But I, I would have no idea what he actually properly looks like, like physically seeing it. There have been so many different games, movies, everything that depicts him in different ways. If you've ever seen something called an anime called Sengoku Basara. Did <laughs> you just stop quoting anime, please? No, no. Credibility out the window. No. My no. respect for you out the Listen, window. Listen, if I was, if I was trying. I'm joking. I love anime. Sure. I just love making fun of sure. you. Sure. If I was trying to quote Sengoku Basara for historical accuracy, then you would have every right to roast me. It is hilarious. There is a point in the very beginning where one of the daimyo is riding his horse that has handlebars on it like it's a motorcycle and is literally speaking like a gangster because his men are motorcycle gangsters, but on horses. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. Yeah. Like, I think I'm behind that. It's, it was, it's pretty great. But anyway, anyway, moving on from this, Oda Nobunaga conquers pretty much everything, but he doesn't get everything, so to speak. And he is the person that would lead everything to the path of unification from the point of around 1568. But before we really get into that and the rest of this, we will need to have a little bit of an ad break. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And we're back. Okay, and before we continue, I just need to say, every single time you use the word anime in this podcast, you owe me $25. I just feel like this is a great way for me to get paid ahead of time. See, the problem with this statement is that I don't have the word anime written even once in any of my notes. But you said it like five times. I know because a lot of this stuff is coming back from references that I'm remembering and just kind of bringing up out of the blue. Okay, you're, perfect. You're, you're like trying to stifle my tangents here. We're going to split the profits anyway, so you might as well just pay up front. Uh-huh. But then also pay me after. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just don't say anime. That that's not going to happen. There will be certain things that I have to reference at different okay, points well, just for the me. sake of it. You have to pay me. Fine. Continue. Okay. So let's begin with this and actually talk about what is the whole setup for the wars itself and like what's going on. And it all begins with a very weak government. There's really a lot of civil wars usually end up doing. It's either either a overly strong government or an overly weak government that usually ends up fracturing into civil war. And this all begins with the Ashikaga Shogunate, which ruled, quote, ruled from 1338 all the way until 1573. And they held control of the central part of Japan. And from that, the bureaucracy of the capital, which was pretty 
efficient overall, but simultaneously, this meant that a lot of the outer provinces that they had were pretty much semi-independent local warlords. Over here, these daimyos, these local rulers, would essentially rule their own lands however it is that they saw fit. There's an interesting thing to note here that when talking about the Ashikaga, people think like, oh, that was the shogunate. And then, of course, afterwards, you had the new shogunate, the shogunate that everyone thinks of under Tokugawa Ieyasu because it's the Tokugawa shogunate, that that was the shogunate. There have been multiple. The, the, the Ashikaga shogunate was, that came after another shogunate, and that shogunate that was before them was way stronger and more centralized. Their version here was much, much, much weaker. So yeah, it was, everything was fine in the capital, but they had really no control outside of that. They did not have the power, prestige, the money. They didn't have anything to really control the warlords that were around them. So local officials and estate managers, such as the Jito, they found it way more difficult to secure any kind of real taxes that the state was supposed to be due from these landlords who really had no fear from the government. The government didn't have the manpower or anything to do anything. So these daimyo were feudal lords who would command personal armies of samurai or pretty much anyone that was willing to take up arms and defend the lord's estates and help expand it, you know, in exchange for pay or land or whatever. Some of these daimyo were aristocrats with very long heritage lists where they had owned large amounts of lands and their, their clans stretched back for centuries. Others were military governors called shugal who they wanted their own kind of independence from this severely weakened shogunate. And there were also new lords that were the son of tradesmen who had gathered together, together small armies by simply taking things from other people. Like they were, there were merchants essentially who rose up, got enough wealth, got private forces together and took over land to make it their own. And so this phenomenon of new rulers overthrowing the established order and the branch families taking the estates of traditional major clans, this became something that was known as Gekko Kujo, which I'm not going to reference anime here, even though I just said the word. You said the word I $25. Know, know, no, no, but no. No, it, it counts. There is a mod for Banner, not Banner Lord, but like the original Mountain Blade that was Mountain Blade Gekko Kujo, which is awesome. I loved playing that extensively. And if you want to look at the translation of it, it's something along the lines of those below overthrowing those above. Which is really cool because it's a simple little phrase that just means like the underdog taking over everything. It's like the ones who are below overturning the system. And that's really cool. The consequence of all that upheaval was that Japan essentially became a patchwork of different feudal states that were centered around their individual castles and fortified mansions that were then simultaneously always trying to fight one another and take over everything in order to expand the number of castles that they owned. When we're talking about this, the fact of the matter is this sounds very similar to the medieval period in Europe, which, to be fair, that's one of the reasons why people say that this was Japan's medieval period. So in that complete absence of any kind of real strong government, the situation is only going to get worse when Shogun Yoshimasa decided to retreat to his Ginkakuji palace in order to contemplate art. See, remember that whole thing that we talked about 
emperors and other people in China and other stuff like that, where they just say, hey, ruling the government? Nah. Nah, I'm going to go and, like, study how to build chairs and oh, have, I remember that. have, like, no-no-naked no parties. Um, he, he was really into locks. You remember that one ruler? Really into locks. Wait, hold on. Did we co- didn't we cover that, like, a long time ago? No, I think I saw it on the internet somewhere. It was, like, a guy who was really into locks and lock picking, and he was just, like, messing with locks, and they were taking over his country. Which is honestly how I would go. Not locks necessarily, but The Sims 4. I don't remember that. And if anyone in the comments of this in the podcast and wants to put what it was that is calling me out on my idiocy for not remembering. I might be misremembering, honestly. But honestly, I would be playing The Sims 4. They'd be burning everything. And I'm just like, yes, my Sim has to go to college. A doctor slay. If I recall correctly, that actually happened to a Chinese emperor who was obsessed with building chairs. Like he loved whittling wood. Uh-huh. And in the middle of one of his sessions, the entire country was getting invaded by nomads and he I respect it. He 100% had to stick to his hobbies and he died doing what he loved, whittling chairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this guy goes back and is like, I don't want to rule. I want to just do art. Awesome. And so the rule of law, like any kind of semblance of order that they would normally ascribe, uh, yeah, that 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 was meant that the only rules that could actually be enforced were those that were done by rule of force. They had to be enforced by force. That's just what had to happen. So over time, the more powerful lords began to absorb the lands of the weaker rivals, and these became the ones that we think of as the Sengoku Daimyo. These warlords would then pass on their positions of strength to their male heirs, and so the position of Daimyo became hereditary unless it was challenged by more ambitious subordinate commanders, which happened all the time, where there were commanders who, even though they swore loyalty to the Lord, when that Lord died and it went to their son, the commander was like, yeah, but I think I could do a better job. Remember the whole thing that happened with Alexander the Great and how, you know, his son was because they... Like, the generals ended up dividing up the empire? Yeah, but honestly, that's on Alexander for not... Laying it out properly. Yeah. Yeah. I think he wanted his generals to rule, didn't he? No, no. He wanted his son. He wanted his son. But the problem is the son was a literal baby at the time because he died young. Alexander was like, what, 32, 33 Wasn't when he, he died? Wasn't he paralyzed or something? Like he had that disease that made him look like he was dead, but he probably wasn't actually dead. No, no, no. He was probably either poisoned or died of malaria. No, there's another study that came out. Like another sect of historians are like, oh, he had this illness. I swear, I'm not making that up. I read like a bunch of articles. Did a new on, thing pop up and I just didn't realize it? It was on Facebook. So truly oh, not the oh. most reliable story. I don't know. I, I'll, I'll look into that and see if there's something that I'm missing. But it's a similar kind of thing where uh, the generals are just like, nah, nah, fam. I'm going to be ruling now. And they would just do it. So uh, yeah, yeah. Typically though, the wealth of the daimyo then came from a couple things. Uh, you had commerce trade, and taxes that were imposed on the peasants who farmed their estates. These guys also then became from that the judge, juries, and executioners for pretty much anything. They were the ones who would formulate law codes to better regulate sometimes the thousands or tens of thousands of people that were under their command. And those laws could cover anything from the prohibition of building castles and fortifications in their territory because they were the only ones that were allowed to control things all the way to different measures that would, uh, you know, control over monetary policy. Uh, They did things to stop, like, 
theater actors from coming in because they didn't want to waste money to banning trade because they didn't want to weaken their own domestic product and capabilities. Oh, wait, what? You found something? You can finish this, but I we should do an episode on Alexander the Great because... Read it, read it right now. What, what did you find? His death may be the most famous case of pseudothanatos or false diagnosis of death ever what? recorded. That's what... It, it's a 2019 article from history.com and it kind of circulates every few months, but basically... His body didn't begin to show signs of decomposition for a full six days. So people were like, oh, yeah, no, he's definitely a god and not an ordinary man because he would have decomposed. Uh-huh. So what they're thinking is like, yes, there's assassination, there's alcohol, there's poisoning, there's malaria. But the fact that he did not have immediate signs of decomposition shows that he probably wasn't dead yet. So this person, Dr. Catherine Hall, she's a senior lecturer at the Dunedin School of Medicine at the University of Otago, New Zealand. She wrote an article published in the Ancient History Bulletin. And she points out that he was known to have developed a progressive symmetrical ascendant paralysis during his illness. And though he was very sick, he remained compost mentis, which is fully in control of his mental faculties until just before his death. So she's arguing that he had a rare but serious autoimmune disorder in which the immune system attacked healthy cells in the nervous system, which can explain this combination of systems better than the other theories that people have put forth for his death. So she believes that he may may have contracted the disorder from an infection of Campylobacter pylori, which is a GI disease because we test for it at work. It's a common bacterium at the time, and he likely got a variant of GBS that produced paralysis without causing confusion or unconsciousness. That which yeah yeah so and the reason why I remember this because I was um we we test for Campylobacter pylori at work so I was just googling oh what is this and that popped up and then you know Facebook kept suggesting this article to me so I read it and then I forgot about it I'm gonna put in a really stupid pun about this but you know it might be kind of ironic about that you know what the region that he was marching through over there in between uh like the Middle East going into India was called what Bactria. Oh, <laughs> so but if he got a bacteria and bacteria, do you want to hear the rest of the sucks. article? And this is on history.com. You guys can literally Google this and it will pop up like Alexander the Great. How did he die? History.com. And it will tell you it. But she argued that the increasing paralysis Alexander suffered as well as the fact that his body needed less oxygen as it shut down would have meant that his breathing was less visible because in ancient times, doctors relied on the presence or absence of breath instead of a pulse to determine whether a patient was dead or alive. He may have been falsely declared dead. Before he actually died. So all of it sounds awful. And honestly, I trust her. I trust her with my life. Wow. That if that is true, that that would suck. It's probably the worst theory of how he died, actually. And all of these are just theories because we can't actually prove it. But I do love this particular one. Oh, my God. Okay, wait. We, oh, yeah, right, right. We, We went on to Alexander the Great. We were talking about in Japan. Let's go ahead and have an ad break before we go on. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we're back. All right, so the beginning of this with the single Kajitai, as we said, uh, it begins with the Onin War, which occurred from 1467 all the way until 1477. This was a war within the overall grand scheme of things for wars. It was a civil war whose name actually derives from the year period that it broke out in. And this broke out because of the bitter rivalry that existed between the Hosokawa and the Yamana families, like these clans. By the end of the decade, though, the fighting had managed to suck in most of the influential clans of Japan, and that conflict revolved with each side backing a different candidate for the position of shogun, which is, that doesn't make any sense at this point. Like, here's the thing. They were trying to back a person that was going to be shogun, but remember what I said about the Ashikaga shogunate not really having any power? Yeah. It was, the, the Ashikaga shogunate at this point was a shogun who had pretty much as much power as the emperor did, which was not much. Symbolically, yes, they had power, but that was pretty much of prestige and not anything else. Were these emperors and leaders okay with not having any power? Like, I'm sure they knew. There were different points in history where emperors tried to assert more authority and shoguns tried to assert more authority. It oscillated back and forth in a kind of power balance. This was one of the first ones in which neither the emperor or the shogun really had any kind of significant power. So that made the entire thing for this, for the Onan War and putting your claimant to the throne, quote, throne, pretty pointless. Like this war overall is just overly aggressive warlords duking it out to try and put their samurai to some use and exert some power. That's really all that it was. So even when the war ends in 1477, there is no real victor. There's no resolution to anything that is going on here there are still all these highly militarized little lords that are going to fracture japan for the next several centuries as warlords and fight each other with no one achieving any kind of real dominance some would fall yes you would start to see one person consolidate and then their little empire that they're building would fracture and break apart into other groups that's just what would happen no one was ever really able to achieve any kind of real dominance and in addition, the fighting during that thing destroyed most of Heian-kyo, which was modern-day Kyoto. It was extremely brutal. It was just bad. So this war, the Onin War, this would start to sort out who was weaker and who was stronger among the daimyo. And gradually from that, you would see their numbers become fewer and fewer and fewer. Hell, by 1600, so 100 and what, 20, 30? Yeah, 130 years later, there was only going to be 250 or so of these in all of Japan. And as a consequence of that, this means that over time, all the resources, the armies, 
everything that would become more and more consolidated, or rather the resources that would consolidate under these new men, meant that the armies that they were fielding would grow from a couple dozen to a couple hundred to a couple thousand to tens of thousands of men that were fighting. Because when you're just an individual little lord, you can't really fuel much. But when you own the land of 10 other lords, well, now you have 10 times the amount of forces at your disposal. So the armies and the battles would just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And these armies became more and more complex because prior to this, you have the beginning of the samurai as samurai are mounted bow archers. Like that was their thing. That's what they did. So armies in the earlier periods of Japan were way smaller. Can we talk about the katana versus the bow? Yeah, Since no, we're on the topic. No, by that topic. Once. Exactly. This is the exact thing that I would want to talk about. People, and I know that this is a thing that people talk about on the internet all the time, but the katana is way blown out of proportion. It was a sidearm. It was a sidearm that was very not commonly used. The reason why the katana is famous is that after everything was peaceful in the Tokugawa shogunate during like that, that period of the Tokugawa shogunate period, the katana became like the symbol of pride and art and beauty and whatever in Japan for like these samurai so it became their legendary weapon. It yeah. became the weapon that they would use yes. if they were able to fight the way they preferred. Exactly. Well, kind in of. In an artful way. But also it's because these were the weapons that were passed down as like family heirs and legacies. So think about this. The fighting ended around 1600. It's now the year 1783. It's been over 180 years since there was any real battle or anything in Japan. And you are a young samurai like not even Lord, you're just a young samurai. You're part of this illustrious family that goes back centuries as warriors. And there's been no war for almost two centuries. Honestly, I would have started one just for the vibes. So, well, what would end up happening is you had all these samurai that had no jobs. They had no ability to do anything because they were samurai. They had, and we're going to talk about this when we, when I go into the Bushin war and I talk about the, the overthrow of the Shogunate, that's a huge part of this. You have all these samurai that don't have jobs. They are given a pension by the government, right? Yeah. And they don't do anything. They just have this little bureaucratic job. And then they spend all day just training with their weapon where there is no battle and then drinking tea and writing poetry. That and sounds that's, lovely. That's their life, but also they're, they're dirt poor. Oh, so their wealth depended on war? So think about this. When you had a pension, let's say that at the end of the Sengoku Jidai, and I know that I'm going to bring this fact up again when we talk about the Boshin War, let's say that there are 50,000 samurai in 1600, and the government has a set amount of money that is given out to those families as their pension. That m amount of money never increases. Or it's like it rarely the increases. Yeah. And so fast forward 150 years and there's four to five times as many samurai and still the same amount of money. So it's basically the TikTok creator fund. Yes. I mean, the old one anyway. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love they that. They would have increases, them. of course, but past a certain point, you have hundreds of thousands of guys, or I say hundreds of thousands. I'm not even sure what the number ever got up to. So they have to we'll split to it more research. and more and more. Yes. A bunch of them literally just sold off their rights as samurai just so that they could get a job elsewhere because a samurai couldn't work a field. A samurai couldn't do, No, a samurai couldn't be a trader. That's a like if we were like every single US Marine could only be a US Marine. Correct. They weren't That's allowed awful. to have another job. 
So, because if they did so, that was a huge loss of prestige, and they would lose their rights and privileges as a so as basically a being a samurai was more of a elevated position in yes. society where you couldn't just be like a dude who fixes toilets. Correct. And so the reason that we talk about swords is that it is during that period of poetry and art and tea and obsession with history and their legacy that the sword becomes this big thing of like, yes, this is my family's blade passed down for 200 years. It is the symbol of ultimate power. Do you remember when you were like, oh, this episode is only going to be 45 minutes long. We're at 30 minutes. We're not even like halfway oh, through. Oh, yeah, no, because I've been ranting about swords and all that. And I've been ranting about Alexander the Great. We both messed up. It's, it's weird because this has like half the number of, uh, of notes in it than any of the other ones do. But it's fine. It's fine. It's so, a fun topic. Like I'm, I, I really am enjoying this episode. Yes, so am I, and I think it's way more lively than, uh, than uh, than other ones that are just more read because there's just so much that we can talk about. There's so much that more that we can. Okay, okay. So as I was saying, things get more specialized, right? And instead of these mounted bow warriors, you now have all different kinds of new fighters that are coming into things. Uh, one of these is a, something called an ashigaru, which is like a a infantryman. It's a peasant, right? And the peasants are starting to be given more and more weapons because it becomes less of a quality game in the single Kujidai and more of a numbers game. Yes, okay, you have 30 samurai at your disposal and I only have 20. But I also drafted 100 peasants and I gave them spears and bows and now I outnumber you. And that was a huge part in the single Kujidai. And these units were raised as armies got bigger and bigger and bigger over time. There, there became dedicated cavalry units, uh, things focused on supply and transporting equipment and troops. Battles had to be fought at greater distances from just around the daimyo's castle. And so lighter weapons became more popular to facilitate troop movement as things became more and more standardized. You saw halberds, pikes, and in the second half of the period, you start to see guns emerging and being adopted by different daimyo. This was huge. Treachery. And all kinds of horrible, uh, deplorable, dishonorable acts were more and more common in this period as in any other kind of war, as people were constantly backstabbing each other. And in that time, there's all kinds of myths about samurai, about daimyo, about their honor and their lords, because during this period, everything was about your power and your projection and the image, right, that you had. So a lot of our stories about samurai honor and all this stuff comes out of this period of the equivalent of medieval chroniclers writing fluff pieces about their lords in order to get patrons because they, the lords want people to write nice things about them. So basically there were a company that was like, hey, can you write something about me that makes me look really good? Yes. Wow. Yes. Love that. Yeah. When in reality, people think about this image of like a samurai, warrior of the blade, true honor, and would never do any dishonorable act. No, they absolutely would. Oh, 100%. If this was your livelihood and you had no other livelihood, please. Oh, absolutely. I would do some devious, dastardly things. Yeah. So this is the equivalent of people who hard focus on like ideals of medieval chivalry and that kind of thing. And yeah, people adhere to a bit of a code of an idea of a warrior, but um. They're going to do whatever they want to win. I'm starting to realize the more we go into this that I am just like 
the worst of the worst. And you're just like a pure golden retriever. What do you mean a golden retriever? You're just like, I would never do anything bad. And I'm like, I would burn everything to the ground if it meant I were to thrive. I think from that logic, you are going to really like uh, what we're going to be talking about with some of the stuff that Oda Nobunaga did. There's a reason why. I love why. Oda Nobunaga. That's why I love Oda Nobunaga. There's a reason why in... The anime single Kubasara. I just okay, so you, oh, he owes me fifty dollars, you guys. Why? At the end of this, you know how Spotify has that little like comment what you thought of this Don't. episode. Just put how much money he owes me in there. Come on, like if you kept track, just like let me know because I need to invoice him. He de- he's depicted as the Devil King. All right, in that like the mall, like that's that's what he's referred to. Okay, you know what? Never mind. Never mind. All right, we're gonna have an ad break now. And we're back. All right. So into all of this in the single Kujidai, uh, a lot of this is centering around castles and field armies, right? So when we're talking about the castles, because there was a constant threat of war and pillaging during this period, everything was constantly under threat. Castles started being built everywhere. Previously in places that simply had just like little villages or towns or, you know, mountain passes, stuff that was pretty valuable to defend, anything along roads that were crucial to control trade. These started to get more and more castles being built upon them. And later, these little castles would take on the form of massive fortified mansions, things that were, uh, that were known as yashiki. And these had just, I mean, there are so many different examples of this. You had Ichi Jondani, you had, uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation Don't of this. Don't butcher the pronunciation, you speak Japanese. Tsutsu Jigasaki. That sounded awful. No, Tsutsujikasaki. I don't know what it, you're I, supposed to say. I know I have to say it faster because it's Tsutsujikasaki. There we go. I think that's more like what it would that I would have to do. But there were a ton of these that were built all around the place. And so I, I'm really excited when we go to Kyoto to actually see some of them because a lot of these things don't exist anymore, but some of them still do. And it's really, really cool. You, you really see multi-storied stone structures going into the 17th century. But, but prior to that, before people could focus on more of the aesthetic and the beauty, so a lot of the castles that you see were actually built after this period, you had all of these fortresses that I really wish that I could have seen from earlier. They were more wood-based. Uh, they had walls, they had towers, gates, everything. They had narrow windows for archers to be able to shoot down from. There was all different kinds of stuff that is just beautiful. And I loved, loved doing that in Shogun 2 Total War when it would go into the multi-tier tower system. Because the, an interesting thing to note, it, have you ever seen a picture of like a Japanese castle? Only the one that we're supposed to be visiting this November. Okay, so let me ask you this. You've seen stuff for the walls of fortresses that were meant from like the gunpowder period, right? Remember how they weren't straight up and down? They were they slanted? Were, yeah. Okay. Japan's before gunpowder, they already had that. And the reason why their stuff was slanted in that way is because Japan is part of, you know, the ring of fire. There are so many earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and everything that kind of shakes the ground in Japan that. The castles are structured in such a way Wait. that it diverts the energy. Don't tell me about the earthquakes until after we leave Japan. Thank you. No, they're small ones, but they're still, they, they, like, that's the thing. I mean, there, there can be big ones. Oh, you know, I should, I should probably shut you up should now just, at this point. Shh, just, just, I will not be going if you continue down that path. 
Okay. Thank you. Anyway, that is why the castles were built the way that they were, Gabby. Um, for aesthetic purposes and not not for anything else. They they just really like slanted lines. <laughs> Are you gonna have to record like a disclaimer? Due to my wife's anxiety, I had to say some untruthful things. Is, is that no, what- no untruth here. Uh, just absolute history boy fantasticness. <laughs> There's going to be someone out there who doesn't understand that you're just being sarcastic. No, no, no sarcasm here. Nothing like that. But anyway, a lot of these villages and stuff that would have to grow up around these castles, these would over time start to grow in number and size as different people would start to consolidate in different positions because, well, safety in numbers, right? Like all these different farmers and different groups would gather together and they would work together to produce more and also to protect each other in kind of big communal projects. Uh, you started to see a lot more things for digging irrigation channels, building water wheels. There's a lot more development. And in the absence of really any authority from the central government, a lot of these villages essentially would govern themselves. Yeah, there, there would be different things like little councils and other stuff that would be formed in order to make decisions regarding law and punishment. Uh, they would organize their own kind of community festival. So you'd see all these different variants among even villages that were fairly close together, but were still at the time actually isolated. Uh, a number of villages would even form together to form their own leagues or Iki, which is for their own, you know, safety and benefit. And some of these even managed to challenge and win in battle against local daimyo, while others would take, you know, advantage of the fact that some lords were off fighting for years at a time in other places on their own campaign to instead just take control of things and better the lives for the peasants under them. There were a lot of different peasant revolts all over the place in this period because lords were oftentimes very distracted, not with what was at home, but what with their enemy next door was doing. So this allowed for a lot of different groups to begin rising up. These cities, these towns, these different places get larger and larger, many of them having a population of over 30,000 people. And thanks to a boom in international trade, because Daimyo at this time really wanted the luxury foreign goods that you'd find from uh, places like Ming in China in order to demonstrate their status and how much better and more powerful they were than everyone else. You know, just, just, just typical rich people things and what they would do. This meant that you started to see a lot more development for roads, for trade, for markets. Measurements and weights are becoming more standardized. Uh, currencies get standardized. All of this to try and facilitate trade. And meanwhile, different Buddhist temples all across Japan start to plummet in wealth and power because the period that they had before this, when it was still under more imperial control, all of these temples were getting all of these benefits from, you know, the central, the centralized government. And afterwards, when everyone is fighting for themselves, no one is really caring about what the local Buddhist monk is going to be doing. And uh, they, 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 these communities start to fall into more and more neglect. And they can't exactly get donations from the locals who are too scared to give up stuff because uh, they need things for their own protection and defense. Hell, worse comes to worse. I say worse comes to worse. The even worse things would come, actually, when uh, different lords would take umbrage with the existence of some of these temples that would uh, interfere in their local plans and just outright attack them, which Oda Nobunaga did a lot. Uh, he, he burned down 
a lot of temples. Wait, he burned them down? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They they interfered in his plans, which brings well, us. I understand. He had to do what he had to do, and I respect him for doing what he had to do. Yeah. Now, I'm not telling the entire story of the single Kujidai, because if I was trying to tell a story of every single individual little clan and all the different things that they were doing and you know, even going into some of the major ones, I would be doing this forever. The Sengoku Jidai is a period of 150-something years or so, right? We're talking about so, so, so many people, places, things, events, all different kinds of things that would occur. So there's simply not enough time for all of it. What I've described so far is the general gist of what was going on, where all these different lords were fighting each other and doing horrible things to each other, as, you know, typically happens in war. But it all comes to a head as things gradually begin to become consolidated by the man, the myth, the legend, Oda Nobunaga. But before we uh, go ahead and tell his story, we need to have a little bit of an ad break. I always feel like I need to apologize every time we have an ad break. <laughs> yeah, I know. We get some comments about that, but we 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 have reduced the overall number of ads. We, that we really have. try, but we have to pay a producer to make the podcast sound good. And the ads are what pays the producer. Yeah. We're really sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm I'm actually very sorry. We have to have ads in here. We got have gotten some comments before even saying how, like, stupid it was and how angry they were that to get things ad free, they would have to go to Patreon. It's one dollar, which it, is actually way Less, less than we'd have to make we make an ad. So honestly, Patreon, it gets you a bonus episode per week usually. And on top of that, ad no free episodes. Anyway, break. A little, yeah, ad break. Ad break time. <laughs> Do it. All right, and we're back. So Oda Nobunaga, the man, the myth, the legend. Let's go ahead and tell his story because you cannot talk about the single Kujidai without talking about him and kind of how things became more wrapped up and really finished. He was the biggest and greatest military leader of Japan from 1568 all the way until 1582. He, along with his two immediate successors, were talking about Toyotome Hideyoshi and Tokugawa Ieyasu, which, yes, for those of you who are not familiar, these were the successors of him. They, they worked with him. They are credited with unifying Japan in the second half of the 16th century. He was a brilliant general. He used diplomacy, superior military tactics, fear, weapons, terrible destruction, but brilliantly utilized in order to just end his rivals and make sure that no one would be able to rise up against him. He was ruthless, and he was meant, in his own mind, to conquer and rule everything. But we need to also tell a little bit of his story of how he became, well, who he became. So Olda was born into a family. And actually, I say Olda. That's not necessarily correct. Um, it's Nobunaga because Olda is actually the family name. It's the clan name, but that's reversed. Just how I would call myself Stephen Bell in Japanese. In this situation, I would be calling myself Bell Stephen because the family and the clan and these blood ties is actually what comes first and is more important for the Japanese. So in the case of Nobunaga, he is born into a family of local administrators in 1534, and his father, Oda Nobuhide, was a minor feudal lord or daimyo in the Owari province, which is in central Japan. Now, Nobunaga would first come into his own. He would start to become more prominent and more powerful when, on his father's death, he became the lord of Nagoya Castle. And then using the castle as his base, 
he would extend his dominion over other rival daimyo with big successes coming in 1555 when he razed down the town of Kyosu, and then in 1559, he captured the fortress of Iwakura. His reputation was ruthless. He would do whatever he could in order to maintain and control power. He even ordered the murder of his own brother, which may sound crazy, but remember that this is the Sengoku Jidai, and this happened a lot. Remember, Gabby, what you're talking about for like not willing to, or like me not being willing to do things? Yeah, this is your moment to shine. Are you going to murder your brother? My brother? Yeah. Are you going to murder him? Can I murder my half-brother? Sorry. Wow, you you had to specify that in here. (laughs) Can I murder my half-brother? Sure. I'll murder a half-brother, but not my actual brother, because he's my little brother and I have to protect him. Uh Uh-huh. Other than that, the rest of them, sorry, y'all. It's business. Nothing personal. Reputation for ruthlessness, as we've just seen here established. So, yeah. In 1560, there was a Battle of Okehazama, where the warlord of Mikawa, Imagawa Yoshimoto, was defeated and killed when Nobunaga, when his outnumbered army, mind you, he didn't have enough forces, they sprang a surprise encirclement of the enemy, surrounded, and slaughtered them. Nobunaga was well on his way to becoming Japan's most feared military leader. He was on the rise. Now, The thing about him is that he wasn't necessarily a very imposing figure. Remember when we were talking about what it is that he actually looked like and how we didn't necessarily really know? There were a number of things that described what it is that he looked like. Several biographies and letters that people were writing. Did they say he was hot? I mean, sorry. um, I'm sure he was very noble. A quote. A tall man, thin, scantily bearded, with a very clear voice much given to the practice of arms, hardy, fond of the exercise of justice and of mercy, proud, a lover of honor to the utmost, very secretive in what he determines, Mm -hmm. extremely shrewd in the stratagems of war, Mm -hmm. little, if at all, subject to the reproof and counsel of his subordinates, feared and revered by all to an extreme degree, does not drink wine. Oh my God. Uh, That's a deal breaker for you right there. (laughs) No, no, no. You didn't drink wine. Also... Uh, the deal breaker is the beard. Like, can he grow one? It's. I'll, did, I'll, they, did they elaborate? Can I ge- look that up? Genealogically, though you can have a beard in Japan, it's not very common. And but he could are have not, probably grown one. He just shaved it off, right? I mean, he had a thin one. Okay, but like, could he have made it thicker? I, I don't know. I well, don't think he might Well, that is the deal breaker. Not the alcohol thing. Just definitely the beard. I see. I see. I just like. The option. <laughs> but they generally regarded him as a severe master. So that's that. What does de- that mean, bro? Severe master. If you disappointed him, you were dead. Respect it. Respect it. Yeah. So Nobunaga just grows more and more and more powerful until eventually he takes control of the capital, Heian Kyo. Again, Kyoto. This being in 1568. And there he installs a man or was he a man or was he a boy at this point? I actually can't remember his age. But he installed the, a new shogun, Ashikaga Yoshiaki, as his own kind of puppet shogun, who would then be exiled five years later for actually conspiring with Nobunaga's enemies, which in that sense would bring an end to the Ashikaga shogunate, which had reigned since 1388. So now in 1579, 
and in control of all of central Japan, Nobunaga establishes a new headquarters at the magnificent Azuchi Castle outside of the capital at the edge of Lake Biwa. Now, there is no remnants really today of this castle except for its stone base. That's it. But it was the first to have a multi-story keep that would become the norm of what you would actually see afterwards in Japanese medieval castles. Like those stereotypical things that you would see of those massive tall keeps, Gabby, in pictures. That was something that was established by him. So he was able to go and defeat all these different rival warlords and expand his territory. And all, it was all thanks to his army. He had a very well-equipped, large army, which included a number of very gifted leaders, including General Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who was, again, the guy who would become Nobunaga's first successor. Nobunaga was a person who did not... He didn't throw away the old ways, necessarily. But he was always, always ready to adopt new technology, new ideas, new everything. Would he just incorporate them? He would incorporate them. He did not care necessarily how he won, so long as he won. And if there was a new tech, if there was a new idea, if there was a new anything that he could use, he would do it. And he was one of the first Japanese leaders to adopt firearms. The moment that he had them, he was going to use them. If we actually go back a little bit in time around 1549, when Nobunaga was a mere 15-year-old leader, like he was a 15-year-old in control of military forces, he created a specialist corps of 500 men, each one of which would have a matchlock musket. And that unit was supposed to be sent into battle. Wait, they used guns? Yes. I thought they used swords. Bows. Do you remember Shiriyama, the song by Sabaton, yeah. where it was like the sword meets the gun? Yes. Those were modern rifles versus, and even then, that's a little bit of an exaggeration because even then, samurai at this time did have guns. And going on later, when they were trying to, you know, remove the the new bad influences, they still used guns. And if they could get their hands on modern firearms, they absolutely would. Remember that whole thing I talked about with um, uh, samurai and like the whole idea of dishonor, and they're not going to do anything that is, they're not going to use a gun because that's dishonorable and it's blah blah blah. That whole thing is bull. Well, they, so they, they absolutely used guns. If whenever. they had guns, they would have definitely they used would them. use it. Yes. So did they just not have guns in that last battle of Shuriyama? Well, no, it's because many of the guns that they had at that point uh, were not as the, good. Well, they were the old style. They didn't want to import new weapons from outside powers. Right. And though because they, they were have, isolationists for yeah, so long. And though they did have some, most of the guns that they did have. And mind you, this is the, the late 1800s were weapons that, they had had since like 1600. So they had guns since 1600. Yeah. They just didn't have newer style of guns. Some did. Some did. But it all depends on whether or not you were willing to import it, whether you could pay for it, your own personal issues with it, etc. Interesting. This changes so much in my trust, understanding. Trust me when I say when we go into the Boshin conflict and we talk about the fall of the samurai, that's going to be a really big part. When are we doing that? We can do it at any point. Hell. I'm sure that we do it next month when the next month's book is with the uh, the daughter, the, of, the the daughter of the samurai. When we do that one, we'll probably go into that because that takes place after the Boshin War. This is so fun because I'm learning a lot of history that I've never gotten to learn before. Yes, yes. No, there's some really cool stuff and there's so, so many more things that we need to talk about, which is why I love doing stuff with the book club. So anyway, when it came to the guns that he was using, uh, these were simple matchlocks and the unit that he had was sent ahead in battle, ahead of the other troops, and they would be ones who'd be able to lay down fire. They were his elite core that he, he, he wanted to use. 
and they would be decisive at a number of different battles, including the Siege of Meraki Castle in 1554, at the Battle of Anagawa in 1570. And because they were so effective, their numbers were increased from 500 to 3,000. And once more, this would bring a massive victory, this time at the Battle of Nagashino in 1575, where it was a huge, huge deal. This, this is the moment, this is the battle that is credited as Nobunaga's finest, or at least some people would argue as one of his finest. So the gist of it is that they would use rotating ranks of musket men to create continuous volleys of fire. So rather than have every single man kind of line up and try to fire at once or have them fire individually spread out in a big, thin, long line, what he would do is that he would have each man line up. They, they would put up a picket fence of like bamboo and they would steady the gun inside of the bamboo to aim it. Kind of like when you have a bipod or something like that, except it's not a bipod because it's literally a fence and you would aim your gun through the fence, fire at the enemy, withdraw your gun, walk to the back of the line and that the enemy or not the enemy, the person behind you would then have their weapon ready to fire and you would reload the gun while the next person in line is getting ready to fire. And they would do this again and again and again in a kind of continuous rolling fire that even though they're not firing all their guns at once, a constant withering fire is destroying their enemy. And at the time this was fighting the, the Takeda clan, which were the horse lords. And when you have horsemen that are charging into a position that is fortified with continuous amounts of gunfire being laid down upon you, the horses are not going to have a good time at all. What do you mean? They get shot. That's what I mean. They get shot by the continuous amount of fire. That is exactly what happens. And that's what the you- The horses? Well, yeah. I mean, the, one of the best ways to bring down a knight is by shooting the horse out from under him. And then they fall and break their neck. It's really effective Everything in battle. Everything about the sentence you just said made me want to cry. I mean, it's really effective. The entire sentence. Maybe not like you talk about murdering your half siblings and all these other terrible things. Yeah, that would be like on purpose. I'd make it swift. Yeah. If I had to, not if I. Yeah. Like if I absolutely had to, if I had no other choice, you know, like Uh a lot was on the line. I'd be like, yeah, I guess. Sorry, bro. Mm hmm. And it's not even my whole sibling. That's only half of a sibling. That's only half of one. Yeah, sure. Listen, Richie and David, if you guys are hearing this, I'm so sorry. You understand, though. <laughs> like, you get it. Oh, man. So in addition to what he would do with guns, he was also the first lord to make sure that every single man, including the infantry, like just the base peasants who didn't really normally have much in the way of protection unless they could do it themselves, they would be issued with full suits of armor. And the territories that Nobunaga would gain were then given to his loyal commanders to govern, and the lands of captured warlords were then frequently redistributed and like broken apart and reallocated in order to break any kind of old ties of loyalty. So he would move in three new lords who didn't really know each other at all and just have them take over these territories so that they had no actual ties to be able to band together afterwards because, again, they they were new. Maybe they didn't even trust each other, but they were separate. And then in addition to that, in order to secure his grip on power, he would attempt to reduce the income of his rival daimyos by abolishing all the tolls on all of the roads. So in any of the lands that he owned and was the overall leader of, 
he would remove tolls because this was a big way that daimyos was then able to accrue their own kind of money in their territory they controlled. So if you served under him, you wouldn't have nearly as much money that you could use to raise forces against him. He also had his own coffers boosted by minting the first Japanese currency since 958. He standardized the exchange rates between all the different coins. Uh, He also would release merchants from their guilds and instead have them pay uh, the state a fee instead. So instead of being tied to the guild, they were merchants of the state. And then from 1571, they had an extensive land survey that would, you know, calculate everything and make taxation more effective because you can't actually tax people unless you know what it is that you are taxing. Then there was another thing because it wasn't just about money. It was also about control for weapons and fighting because we're talking about the single Gujidai Gabi. This is a point in which everyone is fighting and murdering and betraying each other. And in order to do any of that, you need to have weapons, right? Like this is a very unstable period. So what he does is that from 1576 onwards, he starts to confiscate all weapons that are being held by peasants. So if you weren't in the military, any kind of weapon that a peasant could have, whether it's like a sword or anything, taken. Even if you had gotten it in battle as like one as a prize or bought it or whatever, it would get seized because he didn't want anyone to have a weapon to potentially be able to rise up against him. Couldn't he just get more powerful weapons than their weapons like most people do nowadays? We're not talking about research and development now. This is a period in which new technology is not being introduced at a very fast rate. So the removal of stuff is like, you're going to remove a sword because even then for 200 years afterwards, most people are going to be using a sword and a spear and a bow and things like that. So all of those, if a peasant got his hands on one of those guns, he'd take it. it. If they had a sword, take it. And this is why they were actually called sword hunts. You weren't hunting with a sword. You You were hunting hunting for for the swords. Exactly. Oh, wow. So if you ever read about the sword hunts, that's what it's talking about. Is all of this why people today are so afraid of being disarmed by their government, by people in power? It's just one of many reasons. Like the thing is, stuff like this has occurred all over the course of history. This is just one example of it. But typically when people take the weapons away from the general populace, it's usually a bad sign. Yes. Interesting. Yes, it is. So that's what it was. And he would continue to expand his territory all for the goal of unifying Japan. That was everything to him. That was what he dreamed of. That was the ultimate goal. Nothing was going to stop him from taking over everything. Not even religion. Because another one of the strategies that he had to weaken his opponents was to destroy any kind of Buddhist temples that had any degree of influence and also execute any influential Buddhist priests that were associated or allied to any of his rivals because there could be no one that could potentially speak against him and cause the peasants to get all uh, uppity because that can happen. I'll give you this as an example of one of the things and why he would do this. Uh, So you know how there's the ongoing conflict in Russia and Ukraine? Yes. Well, one of the big things that has occurred is that in Russian Orthodox churches, Inside of Ukraine, you had priests that were preaching the destruction of the Ukrainian state and the glory of Putin and everything. So the Russian Orthodox Church was telling them 
to essentially prepare the population for takeover. Did they know that was occurring? No, that, that's why a bunch of priests got arrested is specifically because in these, these Orthodox Russian churches, they were doing that because there's a difference between the Ukrainian Orthodox church and the Russian Orthodox church. One is pro Russia. One is pro Ukraine. Well, yeah. I mean, you could say that. Yeah. Yeah. The other, like there are of course differences in what they would do language wise. How do you think they uh, justify? What's the word? They, you know, that word where you're trying to make two things come together. Where something is righteous. Yeah. How do they justify their that is gonna nationalities re- with reconcile? How do they reconcile both nationalities with their religion? That is some, okay, that's a good question. And the thing is, that's going to require a way more in-depth look. The thing is, religion has always been something that kind of does this. I'll give you this as an example that I'm sure you're already probably familiar with. And that is one of the more screwed up things in history. And that is back during um, like periods of slavery within like the American South where people would say that churches oh, like, Oh, you have to obey your master. It's the will of God. Yeah. And they would tie and religion, they religion to, to control justify slavery and control. I know. And that's why a lot of people today are like, Oh, well, we're not going to follow the religion of our master, you know, like quote unquote masters. So I totally get that. But how, how do people justify all of those actions based? Do they just pick something and go, this is it. I can't even begin to explain that. I, that's going to require something way more extensive than what I'm capable of Honestly, right now. we should get a theology student on because I have a lot of them as friends and I think it'd be really, really fun. Would be interesting. Look into it. Controversial, yes, but bear with us. I realize I've been talking for a while. We should have an ad break before I talk about how he totally destroyed some temples, though. Ooh, on purpose? On purpose. Now ad break time. And we're back. All right, so... Destruction and religion and the end of days. So one of the things that he did was that he destroyed the Enryakuji monastic complex, which is on the sacred Mount Hei near Kyoto in 1571. See, he was concerned that the power of the monastery and that its large army of warrior monks who would still descend from the mountains whenever they felt that they were not receiving their uh, their share of state handouts and, you know, just take things. So Nobunaga and his troops went and surrounded the slopes of Mount Hei. And you know what they did to it? Because, you know, there you're talking about something that is a, a, a siege potentially to a monastery that's at the top of this wooded, forested mountain, which would be very difficult to fight up and take. I don't know what they did to it. They set fire to the mountain. I set fire yeah. to the mountain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They burned the entire thing. They set fire to the forest, which destroyed the temple, and they killed 25,000 men, women, and children. Like the actual mountain. They just said, screw it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were honorable. They fought with honor. That's not very honorable. Remember what we talked about for doing anything to win? That is history. That is reality. Now I'm starting to see Oda Nobunaga in a different light. Maybe he's not as cool as I thought he was. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Everything from our previous conversation means that you should be cheering right now, considering what you were describing. I described killing one half sibling. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm supposed to be Oda Nobunaga's clone. No, no, but you were just talking how much you love him and respect him and you like appreciate the ones I who can make the hard he decisions. Was cool. All of a sudden he's less cool. People can grow and learn. We base our opinions off of our knowledge. When we gather new knowledge, we adjust those opinions. Please. Yeah. 
So another one of these that would end up getting uh, destroyed was Ishiyama uh, Honganji in Osaka. And this was destroyed in 1580 when Nobunaga's fleet of cannon ships, well, destroyed it. Yeah, Toyotomi Hideyoshi would later build the very famous Osaka castle on top of those ruins. Is that the castle we're going to go see? Yeah, we're going to go see that. I'm pretty sure that's one of the castles that we're going to see is the one in Osaka. And as a result of this onslaught on the major Buddhist temples, well, when it finally ended, their influence was pretty much destroyed, whether it was for the government, for the region, any real position of privilege or power that they had was pretty much gone. Whereas in regards to other religions, Nobunaga actually encouraged the work of Christian missionaries in Japan. The reason being is that he saw that any kind of contact with European powers was going to be massively beneficial with trade and technology. The whole thing with firearms, like when he was introduced to firearms, he was like, yes, I want more of this. Give me more. So any kind of contact with Europe and the ideas of the world was something that he loved. He was very keen as well on having people worship him as a kind of divinity, and he would have temples built specifically for that purpose with him as a god. And another strategy from that was to then establish a kind of cult of leadership where he did things such as declare that his birthday was a national holiday. His birthday was a national holiday? Yeah, he declared it. I don't respect that, actually. Your birthday should be celebrated in private and sometimes forgotten because you're so busy working on your goals. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I do that quite a lot. Yeah, but cult of leadership, it's what he wanted before he ultimately died. Which that, in that sense, brings us to his death and the ending. And what people are probably already familiar with if they know the story of Oda Nobunaga, but he gets betrayed. The thing about the single Gujitai, as we discussed, is that betrayal was everywhere. Things were not clean. Politics and loyalties and everything were very blurred and oftentimes did not have very happy endings for people. And in the case of Oda Nobunaga, that was definitely not the case because on the 21st of June, 1582, when he was setting off for a campaign in Western Japan, he died at Honoji Temple in Heian-kyo. He was betrayed by one of his vassal allies, Akechi Mitsukide, who also was the liaison officer between Nobunaga and his puppet shogun, Yoshiaki. So in an episode that was known as the Honoji Incident, Mitsuhide, for reasons that we do not know, launched a surprise attack on Nobunaga's position, and according to one version of the story, when it became clear that he was about to be captured, the man who controlled half of Japan killed himself. Nobunaga killed himself? Yeah, as was, remember the story with the whole thing for, for samurai and like seppuku and like ending your own life? That was real. No, you know, that was real. I thought that was an internet meme. Oh, no, no, that is real. So they sliced their own intestine. So there are are two methods there is seppuku and harikiri. So harikiri literally means like to cut across. Seppuku would just be like stab, right? Like you stab yourself through the stomach. And then the idea of that is that if you get hit in the stomach, this is one of the most painful and awful ways to die. I remember I was pre-med. Which and is, I come from a family of doctors. Which so is I understand. why when someone would commit seppuku, when they would actually die, the idea of it was you never did this alone. You'd have a second. So you would do the action. You would be alive for a few just seconds, stab. maybe just a little bit longer, something to contemplate the what has happened to you. And then the person next to you, while you are hunched over in pain, 
would then cut off your head. And that was your second. How do you find a second? They just found their bestie and were like, hey, I'm going to traumatize you for life, friend. It, was, it happened a lot. I don't think I have one friend that would willingly be traumatized for life because I had to stab myself. It yeah. happened a lot. And people would, would you expect be my the second? same thing. Be, in what situation are you having to do this specific action? Like maybe I messed something up at work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would not be seppuku for you. That would be drowning yourself in wine or something else. Okay. In which case, well, maybe. In which case, the second position in that scenario <laughs> is me holding your head over a toilet while you are <laughs> continuously vomiting. I'm already the second in that position. Well, okay. All of a sudden, you're not as you're not as loyal as I thought you were. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I will sure. look at, I'll have to find somebody else. Sure, Sorry. sure, sure, Sorry. sure, sure. But either way, regardless of how it is that you want to say, uh, he died. Another oh, that version, was a really dark place for me to make that joke. Yeah. Another version has it James, that he died that in a fire because, no, don't cut it out. It's fine. Another version of it is that he died in the fire because they burned the temple to the ground and he got caught in the flames and died. But how do they not know where he died? How do they not know where any of these important historical figures died? I'm so tired of being like, we don't know where he's buried. We don't know how he died. Well, we know that he died. That's the thing. We, we know, know he died. But how do we not know how he died? Obviously, he died. He's whether, been dead. Well, the thing is, it's a matter of what happened first. He died in the fire, but was he dead before the fire or did he die from the fire? That's the question. I like to say he died from the fire because honestly, come on. Yeah. So the temple gets burned to the ground. He dies and his son and heir, Nobutada, also dies during this event. Yeah. So who inherits? Well, not his family, actually. This is where things get uh, really messy and at the same time consolidate very quickly. So his death would be very quickly avenged by his big general, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who would defeat Mitsuhide in battle at Yamazaki and then declare himself to be Nobunaga's successor. He deserved it. He avenged him. Yeah. Hideyoshi would then go on to continue to unify Japan, a process which actually was not completed until his own successor, not again his child or anything like that, but another friend of among them, one of the fellow subordinates, Tokugawa, Tokugawa Iyasu. Iyasu. There you go. He is the one who would actually end up finishing things and establishing the Tokugawa shogunate that would last from 1603 all the way until, actually, wait, it's 1870? It was 250-ish years. It was about 250-ish years. I'm trying to remember at the time when exactly the Boshin War started and when it was overthrown. Because it, Oh, the, so this I'm pretty leads sure, into the Boshin War. Yeah, well, yeah. 250 thought, years later. When you were like, oh yeah, once we go over the Boshin War, I thought that would be at the end of the episode. Now I'm on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Well, I You're mean, just going to leave everyone on a cliffhanger. Well, it's not necessarily a cliffhanger because we're talking about 250 years of peace and development. Yeah, but this we is the know isolation it apart. Well, yeah, it does. So obviously it is a cliffhanger because we're like, okay, it's not going to last. Well, if people like it, here's the thing. We can that do the Boshin. That was really evil, Stephen. I'm not going to lie. Like even for you, that was <laughs> devious. It's, it's, I'm pissed. It's funny as well, because we're going to talk about the bullshit. We skipped a civil war here. Which entirely. one? So there were three major periods of civil war in Japan. You have the Sengoku Jidai that we just talked about. Right. The bullshit, which is the fall of the samurai. Right. But the one that in which the samurai actually rise to power in the first place and actually take over the country that begins this whole process is the Genpei War. And the oh, Gen- you've, you've talked about that endlessly to me. So I'm basically, I have a PhD in Genpei. War. Yeah, sure. Let's, <laughs> let's let's go with that. Oh my god, the look that he just gave me, you guys. If if looks could kill, I'd be dead. 
Uh huh. It's it's not even it's it's not even a look of death. It's like just the way you bobbed your head and went gimpe. And I'm just thinking, Please. what the hell? <laughs> okay, I'm done with you. Well, good, good, because at the same time, we're done with the podcast. That's the end of it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.